This sermon was recorded at the Midtown Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Our scripture reading this morning is Romans 12, verses 9 through 13 which is found on page 948 in your pew Bibles. Romans 12, verses 9 through 13. If you're able, will you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you in the name of your Holy Son, Jesus. We stand in your presence as those who are purchased and sealed by his matchless blood because of his work clothed in his righteousness alone. God, this morning I ask that as we open your word together, would you give us a spirit of understanding, spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of who you are? God, would you enlighten our eyes? Would you shape our hearts? God, would you give us your vision of what is good and right? Would you change how we evaluate things? Would you fill us as a family with your perspective? And God, would you make us as those who you have called to yourself, obedient to the words that we heard read? God, that we would love one another with brotherly affection, that we would hold fast to what is good, that we would love one another with genuine, genuineness in our hearts, and that we would outdo one another in showing honor. God, would you write this upon us? We ask in Jesus' great name, amen. Amen. Well, so I I have a charge this morning to get to the end. Uh, My lovely wife, when she read the notes on Friday, came to me and said, don't get bogged down early. You got to get to the end. So uh, I'm just going to jump right in. Look with me here at letter A. So one of the essential ingredients I am praying that the Lord would help give us as a spiritual family to build the type of culture or the church culture that I I think the Lord has for us on the horizon 
is to seek to embody a culture of grace and honor. What we've been talking about over the last several weeks as we're looking on the horizons and talking about uh, building toward the kind of church that, the God, that God has called us to be in the coming season, we've looked at our values, right? Like the things that we love together, the things that we're going to look at and say, that's, that's what we see as what matters or what's successful or how we're going to live together in community. One of the essential elements, I think like a building block, you could say, one of the stones that has to go into that wall that I, I, I pray would absolutely mark us as a church is to operate together with a spirit of, uh, of grace and honor among one another. So let me just say this really fast, right? We've talked about values, what matters, what's successful, how do we play together? This is one of the places where I want to just take a moment and go, hey, this is how we're going to play together, right? One of the jobs of a father in a family is to look at the family and regularly go, hey, this is who we are. This is how we're going to live together. This is how we're going to be together. And as one of the leaders of this church, uh, given in a stewardship by God, uh, I, I'm, I, I want to look at us and go, hey, family, this is how we're going to be together. We are going to seek to per- pursue walking amongst one another with grace and honor together. This is what we heard read in Romans chapter 12. Look at letter B. To build a culture of grace and honor, we, we do this by demonstrating honor toward one another in our actions, right? So we have a willingness to serve. We show brotherly affection to one another and in our speech. So it's, it's things we do and it's the way that we talk to one another, right? Words spoken over each other. The spirit with which we speak words towards one another. Uh, uh, a spirit of prophecy among our family, a commitment amongst one another not to gossip or slander uh, about our brothers and sisters in their absence. Some of those realities have to go into what it means to pursue a culture of grace and honor. Look at uh, Psalm 45. Part of the reason that I long for this to be who we are is this is what our Savior is like. This is a portrait of Jesus ultimately in Psalm 145, the psalmist declares that Jesus is the fairest among all the sons of men. And then he makes this unbelievable statement, grace has been poured out upon your lips, meaning that your words are marked with a spirit of grace and honor that they infuse life when they're spoken. This is what our Savior is like, and this is what we are going to uh, seek to be like in his grace as his people. Look at Colossians chapter 4. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So to grow a culture of grace and honor requires that we very intentionally and very consistently seek to align our methods of evaluation. Meaning, how do we see things? How do we evaluate reality? How do we, how do we evaluate one another in light of God's methods of evaluations? 
right? So we have to regularly do work because in our sinfulness, we are so prone to run after different ways of evaluating what really matters, what's good, what's right, what's successful, what is uh, to be uh, attained toward, right? We, we regularly fall off, off the ditch into uh, the ways of the world, And we have to regularly realign our lives, seek to come back up under what God says is good and right. Letter D, God desires that his family, us, his family, be vessels of grace to one another. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. God desires the church family to be one of the primary mechanisms by which his life-giving grace is given to one another. We are set in a family here, right? He's placed us all in families, both spiritual and natural. And a family is intended to. Now, I love the way that Chris talked about this in the prayer, right? Like every gift that God gives has elements that have been marred because of the curse of sin. So this isn't the, uh, the norm of every family, but the intended design is that we would be strengthened in our identity, right? A family is a place where you learn who you are. It, you learn uh, uh, how you've been made and your place in the world, to be secure and confident in love, to be built up and edified in accordance with what God says is true. That's what families are for and that's what spiritual families are for. Places where our identities can be shaped under God's word, where our, uh, our confidence in who God has called us to be so we can stand firm in the love of Christ is shaped in a spiritual family where we're regularly reminded and built up in accordance with what he has said. This happens in that place. Look at letter E. Scripture regularly teaches us that God does not see or evaluate things like we do. That's a a shocker to the system, right? We all want God to think the way that we do. God does not think like you think, right? God does not think or see things or evaluate things the way that you do. There's There's a news flash for us all there. And just a, 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 a side note, that's actually really good news. That's really good news. God doesn't see things the way that you do. In the family of God, this is especially true because we've been purchased, saved, justified, and given a new name in Christ Jesus. Right? So every one of us isn't who we seem to be, right? We are new creations in Christ, every one of us. So in the spiritual family, we are called to regularly be vessels and conduits of God's grace of our new identity amongst one another. And we're to do that with how we live toward one another and how we speak towards one another. Look at Isaiah 55 here. My thoughts are not your thoughts, the Lord God says to us. Letter F. Our standard of evaluation is often based on what we listen to, meaning how do we, what do we take into our lives and let shape how we see things, how we interpret things. So we must regularly ask the question, am I seeing things with God's eyes or am I seeing things with fleshly eyes? 
This affects our interactions with one another and in profound and dramatic ways. Okay, so that's my intro. Here's my goal. I want to take motherhood as a specific and glorious case study of how we move toward or shift the tide toward building a culture of grace and honor here in our family. I want to use it as a case study. My goal today is not to set out motherhood as this like end all, be all, attain all thing. Or to say like this is the greatest fulfillment or the place where all your longings are going to be fulfilled or any kind of thing like that. What I want to do is look at the reality, use this reality, what the scripture teaches us about motherhood to shape how we see the world, how we see what God sees, what he says is good and right and valuable and to be pursued. And I pray that it changes us as a spiritual family. And sub point, I actually really pray that this infuses the moms in the room with a ton of dignity and courage and like wind in your sails. That's, that's what I pray for. So that's my goal this morning. So we're going to take motherhood and put it on display as a case study. If we're going to go, hey, we're going to build a culture of grace and honor here at Redeemer. This is one of the things we're going to do together. We're going to take this little microcosm and talk about it as a mechanism to look at moving toward a culture of grace and honor. Look at Roman numeral two. The gift of motherhood. Letter A. Motherhood is a unique and powerful expression of one particular aspect of God's essential design for women. Now, again, hear me say this. It's one aspect. It's not all the aspects. It's not everything. But it is one remarkably unique and potent expression of God's design for women. The ability to conceive, sustain, birth, and bring forth, both naturally and spiritually, is a beautiful part of how God has created the feminine image bearer. Now, this requires a little presupposition for you. We're all image bearers. Every one of us, made in the image of God, designed to reflect his nature and character. However, God has designed his image bearer in two unique genders, right? We, we can only image God as a gendered being. We cannot image God any other way, right? Each gender has been given unique aspects of what it means to image God that are in accordance with our essential nature, right? There's a presupposition there, right? So this aspect of part of God's glorious design for the feminine image bearer is what I want to look at this morning. Letter B, this important aspect of femininity is tied to the concept of giving life, right? They're they're so knit together, you can't separate them, right? This is all about being a life giver, right? Conceiving, sustaining, bringing forth, again, and, and hear me say this, both naturally and spiritually. There, there, it is life-giving. There's a profound correspondence 
between the natural capacity to give life and the spiritual capacity to give life. Look at Genesis 3. This is wonderful, right? When, when Adam, uh, after the fall, he, he renames his wife. First, she's just been called woman. And then he gives her a name. And his name for her, and, and one of the things that you may not understand from the creation account, is uh, Adam has been given this task to name things in align with their reality, right? So that's, that's one of the tasks he's been given. So when he gives this name, he's embodying an, an essential aspect of his wife. He says, her name is Eve, which means life or life giver because she was the mother of all the living. Look at the top of page two. This should go without saying, it's pretty obvious. But I'll say it anyway. Mothers are essential in the work of creating and p- passing on life throughout generations. That's a pretty obvious statement. This happens through the rearing of children and through spiritual motherhood in prayer, discipleship, and training. Okay, one of the glorious realities that we see related to this is that women are given the unique ability, even in their bodies, to receive and sustain what you might call hidden growth, right? Like this is a picture of us, uh, to us, of every believer's role to receive the word of God within and let it grow to fruition. So even, even the act of uh, uh, cooking a baby, right? gives witness to something in the spiritual reality, right? There is a dignity to that in the very fabric of design of how God has made women that gives a glorious picture of something that we're all to look at and go, oh, there, there is elements of spiritual reality in that, right? Look at James 1. He draws on this. Therefore, Christians, all Christians, put away filthiness, rampant wickedness, and do what? Receive with meekness the implanted word inside of you that is able to save your souls. This hidden reality that is to grow and mature inside. Letter E. Mary, the mother of Jesus, is presented in the scripture as the ideal life giver and a portrait of responsiveness and submission to the will of God, which is to mark the church of God, right? When when God comes to his people and says something, we are to, like Mary, respond in this way. Behold, here I am, the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to what you want, just as you want. And in that, she is given the gift to nurture and sustain and conceive the living word. Letter F, it is impossible, absolutely impossible, to overstate the importance of mothers throughout history of mankind. You could not fill, I mean, volumes of books pontificating on the glory and the importance of mothers. Each of our existence is tied to a mother. Again, another obvious sentence that should not have to be said, but I'm going to say it. Every one of us is here because of a mother. 
And throughout history, mothers have had a unique and specific and powerful and potent element of discipleship, specifically related to children. But also, I think about, here, here's a fun thing if you want to go talk about spiritual motherhood throughout history. Go read the story of any revival in history. And I almost guarantee you, the birth of that will be tied to two little old ladies sitting in a room crying out that God would do what he promised to do. Every one of them, almost every single one of them, you tie back to this uh, mothers of the faith who have received the truth of what God has promised that he said he would do. Faith has arisen in them. They take God at his word and they beseech him to do what he said he would do and he breaks in. And things are birthed through that. It is impossible to talk about the importance, how important they are. All right, number three, rethinking value. This is where I can't get caught up. So when we think about value, right, we have to think about what's important, what's worthy, what's successful. Every one of us longs that our lives would matter. Everybody longs for that. We all want our lives to matter, to give our lives away to things that matter. What we ultimately think is going to satisfy us and make our lives matter, successful, worthwhile, and bring fulfillment, we're going to run headlong to pursue those things. But one of the hardest realities of the Christian life is reorienting what we think matters with what God says matters. That's one of the hardest things. And what we see time and time again through the scripture is that God does not see things the way we see things. Look down here at 1 Samuel 16. Here's a wonderful statement that you can chew on for a long time. Samuel is going to anoint the new king. The firstborn son is brought to him. He's tall and strapping and handsome and obviously the guy. And the Lord says, I don't, I don't pick him. Don't look at how tall he is. Don't look at how handsome he is. Don't look at all these external things that you ascribe value and worth to. Why? Because the Lord does not look at things like man looks at things. The, Lord looks at, or the man looks at the outward appearance. Where does the Lord look? At the heart. Right? Jesus is telling us, or God is telling us through this, what's important to him. We all love to evaluate things based on externals, both positive, negative, who's got what, how successful, and how much status I have. We love to evaluate based on that. God is not impressed. God looks at the heart. That is the overwhelming testimony of the scripture. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus declares that his disciples are to orient their pursuits before God's eyes alone. He warns us not to practice our righteousness before the eyes of men, that we would be seen and rewarded by them. Rather, we're invited to live before God's eyes and his eyes alone. Look at Matthew 6, verse 3 here. This is the statement that Jesus makes. When you give to the needy, let the reader understand, mothers, when you give to the needy, let your given be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Look at the top of page three. I did it. 
So revaluing motherhood. Our contemporary cultural narrative, I believe, is designed. I think there is an insidious design to denigrate and devalue the gift of motherhood. Our world evaluates worth, again, what matters, what's successful, in ways that are profoundly opposed to the ways that God defines these things. I'm going to give you three easy examples. And Chris said all three of these in his thing. He stole my sermon. (laughs) Number one, number of followers, right? How many people do you have follow you? We're offered portraits of a successful life that looks like size and scope of our impact. We're consistently told, again, now nobody tells you these words, but you're consistently told by being given an image of what is uh, going to provide you satisfaction and wholeness, right? Regularly painted a picture, this is what's gonna make you happy. We're told this to build a brand yourself, a platform or a following. Number two, the impact of your voice. Our culture holds a high value on the importance of our voice being heard. This specifically means, if if we actually pull the thread of what people are saying, it doesn't actually mean the ability to state my opinion and have dialogue that could be like debated or disagreed upon. It means the ability to influence or give shape or direction to things. It means I have the ability to get what I want is what that actually means. It's code for. That's a huge part of our cultural narrative of what's successful, right? Number three, vocational impact and success. Our culture has oriented so much, so much, so much worth and value to our vocational role, its impact, its success, its importance. Okay, now let me say, say one sentence here. None of these things are necessarily evil in themselves, if you have them. I'm just talking about these things have absolutely nothing to do with God, how God defines success. Absolutely nothing. He's not impressed. He doesn't, he's not looking up in heaven and going, oh yeah, yes, uh, another thousand followers. Okay, write, write their name down. Oh, yeah, yeah, they got another promotion? Okay, yeah, write their name down. Like, this is not how God evaluates success. The reason I'm saying that is because we need to orient our vision of how God defines success uh, uh, to come up under that so that we run after the things that he defines as successful. We actually need to spend our energy running after those things, not spinning our wheels running after the things that the world defines as successful. That's what I'm trying to get at here. So letter B, each of these definitions of value and worth has absolutely profound implications, particularly if we're looking at our case study on how we see motherhood. In order to regain or revalue this, There are important biblical truths that we have to hold to. Now, 
These are just a handful. You could put probably 15 more here. These are just uh, a little handful that on a Thursday afternoon, I decided to put on a piece of paper. Five truths, five biblical truths. Actually, no, 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 really there are four truths, one reality with an, with an invitation. Okay, so four truths and then one reality with an invitation to it. All right, here they are, and this is where I'm gonna slow down. Number one, children are a blessing. God's word invites us to see that children are a gift from the hand of God. They're not something that stands in the way of us realizing our greatest worth and our truest potential. I want us to grapple with that, right? There is a very strong tenor in the world right now that children suck your life away. They take things from you. They keep you from things, right? And the biblical evaluation model, right? How does God see things? That's what we need to ask. Is drastically different than this, right? In many ways, the gift of children is a particular avenue in which God's estimation of value is fought for and won in our lives. What I mean by that is many of these truths, right, and learning to embrace them are worked out in boundary systems, in places where you have restraint put on your life. And one of the beautiful ways that God has chosen to restrain his people is by giving us children. Yeah, I can't go be everything I want to be. That's good news. That's really good news. We'll talk about that one in a minute. That is really, really, really good news. This is, these are grappled over and ingested and worked on and mold over. One of the glorious avenues in which we do that is through the, the gift of children. And so we need to do work to move our mindset away from seeing and evaluating children one way to evaluating children God's way. What does the Bible say? Again, I didn't make this up. Psalm 127. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord or a blessing from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward. Okay, number two. Truth number two. It is better to give than to receive. This declaration from scripture, <laughs> I said is one of the most. I think it is the most, the most counter fleshly realities in God's word. God declares that it is better for us to live in a posture of giving than in a posture of receiving. Again, we either take this as God's word or we reject it. There's, there's not a middle ground, right? We either set ourselves to come up under what he says, or we don't. There is no uh, waffling between, right? God's word declares it is more blessed for you to be in a posture of giving than in a posture of receiving, right? We are invited to see through God's word that we will be most satisfied. Again, that's, that's what we attribute value to. What's gonna fulfill us? What picture of the good life do we have on the horizon? 
that we will be most satisfied not when we seek to gain our own and our fulfillment, but precisely in the place where we lay this down. So Acts chapter 20, Paul is recounting this, and he says, in all these things I've shown you, I've demonstrated to you, by working hard in this way that we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, why is this? Have you ever asked that question? Why do you think it's more blessed to give than receive? Why do you think it is better to live in a posture of emptying than in a posture of absorbing? It's because there is something about the nature of God that is like this. There's something about God's own nature that is like this. You don't believe me? Let me show you in the scripture. Philippians 2. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, meaning he was God of God, glorious of all glorious, holy, resplendent, majestic, none like him. Though he was in the form of God, when he came to the earth, he did not walk around and demand that everybody give him the honor that he deserved, right? It would have been worth who he is if he would have shown forth in the uncreated light of the divine nature and made everyone fall on their face and worship him at the moment. He did not consider his equality with God as something to be grabbed onto. But what did he do? He emptied himself. He emptied himself. He emptied himself. It's more blessed to give than to receive. There's something about God's own nature that is represented in the pouring out nature of love. The pouring out nature of devotion and commitment for another that is demonstrated in the heart of God. And we see it here in Jesus. Look at Matthew chapter 16. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Why? For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Okay, so let me, let me stop here to make an application point. I've, I've interacted with lots of people over the, over the course of the last couple decades. Moms, people who are on the threshold of being moms, things like that that have this apprehension, right? About if I step into this season, I'm gonna lose myself. I'm gonna lose things that are dear to me. I'm gonna lose things that are close to me. Opportunities. I'm gonna lose, I'm gonna lose, I'm gonna lose, I'm gonna lose. And I wanna go, wait a minute. Wait a minute. That sounds like an invitation to me, right? That sounds like a glorious invitation. What does Jesus say? Take Jesus at his word, right? Whoever, what's his life? 
loses his life, finds it. Hey, you want to know the fastest road to contentment and satisfaction and fullness and wholeness and joy everlasting? Laying down our lives. That is the only road. It's the fastest road and it is the only one. There isn't another one. Not one that like straddles between the two. Not one that runs headlong to try to take it in in this life and then thank Jesus for it. The only way to contentment is through laying down our life. Losing our life that we might find it in the end. All right, truth number three. God remembers. The scripture invites us to stake our hope in the fact that God sees in the secret places and will remember every single thing done in his name and will literally reward them in eternity. This gives hidden, seemingly insignificant, profoundly mundane, and menial aspects of our lives potential for eternal significance. This infuses those moments with the potential for absolute unending significance. Jesus says we have a choice, right? Earlier when we looked at Matthew chapter six, Jesus says we have a choice. We can spin our wheels for the kickback, the affirmation, the reward in the eyes of people, or we can throw all of our energy into living before God's eyes alone and seeking his approval, his affirmation. Look at Matthew chapter 10. Whoever gives one of these little ones a cup of cold water, because he's my disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Do you know what Jesus is saying there? He's saying, I don't forget anything. I don't forget anything. If you handed somebody a cup of cold water, again, let the reader understand, moms, okay, right? You're reaching your heart. I want to be pleasing before God. I want to do this before the eyes of God. I want to, I want to live before his eyes. Mom, mom, I need a cup of cold water. Okay, honey, come here. Let me get it for you. You'll give them the cup of cold water and you will forget it tomorrow. You will forget that tomorrow. Do you want to know what the word of God tells you? Jesus will never forget that. Jesus will never, ever, 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 ever forget that. That's unreal. Look at this. This, this, one's, this one's mind-boggling to me. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul says, I don't, I don't judge things today. I don't judge myself. I don't judge where I, how, how good I'm doing, how, 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 like what I've attained, what I haven't attained. I'm not aware of anything against myself, meaning I, I, I live with a, a cleanness of conviction before God. I've repented of my sins. I'm, I'm living before his eyes, but I, I, I'm not acquitted. The Lord will judge me. Therefore, here's the implications of this. Don't walk around pronouncing judgment on each other before the time, before the Lord comes. He's the one that gets to bring to light the things that are hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart and we all go gulp, 
right? Uh-oh, here it comes. What does Paul say? He says, then, he's not talking about secret sins and secret things that are done in the dark. He's going to convict you of those. You need to bring those into the light. You need to repent from them and turn away from them. That's clear. He's talking about hidden things done in the reach of your heart when you long to be holy before him. When you long to minister to him, when you long to be pleasing to him and no one sees and no one's going to give you a pat on the back and no one's going to trumpet your name on whatever platform you want to choose. He says, the Lord will bring those to light. And then what does he say? Each one will receive his commendation from God. Hey, can you imagine this? Can you imagine this? All the things that we're running after, spinning our wheels to try to get in this life, right? I want to get those people's affirmation because then I will feel like I'm respectable. I want to get this size of job or this stature of vocation because then I'll feel like I matter, right? Whatever that reality is, we run after him, we run after him, we run after him. The problem is sometimes when we attain him, everybody that knows when you attain him, there's like six more on the, on the horizon. It lasts for about two seconds. It feels pretty good for a second and then it's over. And then there's the three more you don't have that matter way more than the one you do. That's life. Can you imagine though, the moment where your creator pulls out things from the dark, hidden places and commends you. And it will last forever. That thing that you're running after to try to scratch that itch of longing, of worth and value and dignity and success in your life that you can't ever actually scratch. Here's how we can by faith look and know this is how God has designed for us to have that fulfilled for all eternity. When your maker looks you in the eyes and goes, I saw that. That mattered to me. I cared about that. And then each one's commendation comes from God. Look at the top of page four. When you throw a party. One of the further ways that Jesus demonstrates that there should, we should not work for success and worth in the eyes of others is by telling his disciples to throw a party for those who can never repay them. Luke chapter 14. He says to the man that invited him, when you give a dinner banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors lest they also invite you in return and be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, the weak, and you will be blessed. Why will you be blessed? Because they can't give you anything. And you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Do you want their short-lived, quick, fleeting repayment? Go for it. If that's what you would like, go for it. If you want a repayment that will never go away, 
that you'll be able to live on for all eternity, let me tell you how you go after it. Throw a party for people that can't pay you back ever. Now, let me interpret this. Again, we'll step aside and talk about application for moms just a second. This isn't always reality for you, right? This is always your reality. Giving your life for someone who will never repay you. Never repay you to the extent that you did. You change a diaper, you get peed on. Right? That's your repayment. You, uh, you give a Christmas gift, the next day, no one wants it, it's broken, and they're complaining about what they didn't get. <laughs> hey, and this doesn't stop. Your adult children don't love you the way that you as a mother have given of your life. I mean, the essence of your life. You, you created them in your womb. You knit them together. Like, you didn't knit them God knit them together. But you know what I mean. It's like your life energy went into that. Your blood and sweat and tears and time and energy. And you felt nauseous every day for God knows how long. You, you couldn't like move around. You had to go to the bathroom 17 times in the middle of the night. Like no one else did that for that person. They will never love you that way. If done before the eyes of the Lord, there is eternal significance in that, in that labor. I could talk about that for a long time. I'm already over. Number five, this is the reality with an invitation. I just called it a sword will pierce your heart. There is a particular vulnerability related to motherhood that I believe will be faced by every single woman. I think every woman will face this vulnerability in their life tied to this particular aspect of their design and the reality that we live outside of Eden, right? Genesis 3.16 shows us that bringing forth children will be marked with pain and sorrow and suffering. The very capacity for conceiving, giving life away will be laden with so many difficulties and trials, right? Infertility, miscarriage, loss of children, wayward children, children not returning all of the life and the love that you have given. And there's so many more. This is a reality, right? It's, I've been thinking about it as I've prayed. This is the sentence that Simeon says to Mary. I mean, Mary's the mother of God in the flesh. If anybody would be separated from the difficulties of motherhood, it would be Mary, right? And Simeon goes, hey, just so you know, a sword is going to pierce through your heart as well. Like this gift, this glorious place, this wonderful vocation is going to bring you pain. It's going to bring you pain. And there is in this an invitation 
an invitation for all, all women to grieve the reality of our world, right? It, the loss in our world, the brokenness of our world. We lament, right? There's an invitation to lament, like things are not the way they should be. And we hope, right? We look to a savior and a redeemer who is working now to make all things new. All right, I'm gonna fly through Roman numeral five. I have to, I'm sorry. So to revalue motherhood in such a way has profound implications on how we live together in our families and as a spiritual family. Such ways of seeing should have implications on our speech, energy, time, focus, as we seek to bless and honor what God calls valuable. Letter B, there is a particular way in which seeking to honor women in general and motherhood as an aspect must be carried out by the men of our church. So I'm gonna speak specifically to the men of our church for a minute. Primary leadership, meaning responsibility, has to be embraced and owned by us for this to take root. This has to be a charge that is given and held and taken up and said, we are going to run after this. If, if our spiritual family is going to be marked by a culture of grace and honor, we have to say, hey, this is on our watch and we are going to do this. We are gonna run after this. We are going to intentionally pursue this. We're gonna turn away from ways of judgment and other ways of seeing. And we are going to stand and speak and act and bless and name and call forth according to how God has made things. This is a primary responsibility that is tasked to us. Okay, so here's some special or practical pursuits to walking it out. Number one, speak and demonstrate the blessed gift of children. How we talk about children, both in small and large contexts, will shape so much of how our spiritual family views things in accordance with God's eyes, right? This is the, the common thing in our world right now. We all get together, we get a glass of wine, and then we like bark about how hard it is to be parents. Let's not do that. Let's not do that. We can talk about places of difficulty, but then those need to be infused with remembering what God says is true. What God says is true, both in our own hearts, but we need friends that do that, right? Like if I'm sitting there and discouraged about the difficulties of parenting, what I do not need from you is for you to jump in and like pile on. What I need from you is to look, for you to look at me and go, yeah, but God sees things differently. Remember this, Ron. Remember the hardships, what they invite us into. Remember how God sees things and what he says is true. That's what I need from you. So be that. Be that with one another. All right, number two. Men particularly. Fight to regularly honor women in action and behavior. Husbands, this speaks of a willingness to serve, to help in our homes, right? To like have a willing, loving disposition in your behaviors toward your wife in your home. Treating women with great respect and walking in purity. I wish I had a ton of time to talk about this. Uh, what I mean here is men, 
One of the ways we will cultivate a culture of honor and grace in our church is by seeking to walk in purity. And I talk about, I'm speaking specifically to what we let into our eyes. Making a covenant with our eyes to not be defiled with sexual immorality matters a ton here. It matters a ton here. One of the ways that we can all take this up is to say, I am going to let no worthless thing come before my eyes. And I am not going to give myself over to uh, ways of degrading and defiling women outside because I want to live in the family with a way that builds up and, and holds up women in our church. Number three. Fight to regularly honor women and mothers with words. So that's, we do this in behavior, we do this in speech. So this includes that we have to understand God's evaluation, both of individuals and their vocation. For husbands specifically, spend time verbally honoring your wife's vocation and its value. When I say vocation, I don't just mean her job. I mean her pursuit of the Lord, Call that forth. Talk about the value of it. Speak the value of it. Say things about things that nobody else gets to see but you and how they matter to the heart of God. Talk about those things. Fill motherhood with dignity. Talk about areas of her growth and discipleship where she's pouring her life out for the glory of God and the good of others. And then for specific areas of her assignment. Number four, husbands, seek to teach your children to honor and action, or honor with action and words. So again, fathers, husbands, it is your primary responsibility to create a culture of honor in your own home. Just like it is in this family, it is in your home. Seek to sow seeds of respect and obedience from your children toward their mother both in word and action. All right, and lastly, family. This is for all of us. Let's fight to honor what God honors. As a spiritual family, I want us to press on or reach towards aligning ourselves with what God honors. The Sermon on the Mount. You want to know a good place to start? Go read the Sermon on the Mount again. Specifically, the Beatitudes. Gives an excellent roadmap of the value system of God's kingdom. We must be committed to renewing our minds according to God's word, right? We'll never see things the way that God sees them if we're unfamiliar with them. We have to renew our minds with his word. Then we have to start speaking those things as good, even if inside our hearts they're still like clunky and hard and we don't always do them, right? We need to name them as good. We need to talk about them as good. We need to call them out as good. And then we ask God for more revelation and grace to live in accordance with his ways and his ways alone. Amen.